0: Hello, I am Marsha Lynx Quayle, and here we are at the Off London Book Fair podcast and I'm with, uh, now with Omid Taufikian uh, who is a lecturer in philosophy uh, formerly at the American University in Cairo, now adjunct lecturer at New South Wales, also honorary associate at University of Sydney, a researcher, community advocate and accidental literary translator. He's the author of Myth and Philosophy in Platonic Dialogues and translator of Beirouz Bouchani's multi-award winning book, No Friend But the Mountains, Writing from Manus Prison, and co-editor of Refugee Filmmaking, Alphaville Journal of Film and Screen Media. And just wanted to start out by you reading from, from your translation to sort of set the tone.
1: First of all, thanks for having me.
0: Yes, thank you.
1: This uh, passage is from chapter 7 in um, No Friend But The Mountains. Now, I should mention that at a certain point, the passage moves from prose to verse. Okay. So I'll give it a little signal when that happens, so that the reader knows that yes. we're the switching format. On some days, when the clouds are thinner than usual or the sky is filled with only sparse pockets of cloud, the heat in the tunnel reaches temperatures that could cook a human body. Prisoners are like pieces of meat in a metal pressure cooker. During the day, almost no one dares sleep or lie down on their beds inside the tunnel. No one even feels like sitting down inside because every second spent in there means experiencing heat that sears eyeballs. There is an alternative. The prisoners find sanctuary under a single old tree with wide leaves that that stands between the dining area and the small room erected for no clear purpose at the top of the compound. This thick tree generously spreads its branches across the whole area. Like the cool shade of an umbrella, it comforts many of the distressed men from the tunnel. The shaded space is filled with plastic chairs. The prisoners sit there, leaning back on the chairs. Move to verse. Killing time involves a simple trick. Reach out and hold another sunset. Another one of the thousand colour Manusian sunsets. Then, reach out and hold another night. Another one of the dark island nights. A futile cycle. Night and day revolving under the shade of an old tree. Back to prose. In some periods during the middle of the day, not even a bit of water-bearing tropical cloud emerges in the sky. The temperature reaches its peak. Verse. Two suns are in battle, one descending from the sky, one ascending from earth, searing, extremely bright reaching total domination. Prose When the sun and the earth come together as one, places of shade become rare and the prisoners gather under the shade of the old tree, like baby chickens sheltering under the wings of their mother. The Papus and Australian officers work incessantly and monitor back and forth all throughout the prisons the faces of Australians, bright red faces, blood red faces. Australians with fat asses, sweaty ass cracks flowing right like rivers, it seems that even sunglasses are defeated, and the mosquitoes, what intelligent creatures they have disappeared, living beings that evade the light, precise and quick in the dark
0: that's wonderful, thank you. so my understanding is that you started out by uh, translating some of Bahruz's, um journalistic pieces but so how but how did that come about
1: well first of all i should mention that i've been working in this particular space supporting displaced exiled peoples um uh, in australia and in other parts of the world mm. collaborating with them on different levels since the early 2000s um before that i mean of course m- my own experience of displacement and exile also um uh, uh, that uh, encouraged me, motivated me to do this kind of work, but at that um, point in the early 2000s I became politically active. And it was only at the beginning of 2016 that I read one of Behrouz's articles, translated by his first translator, Munes Mansubi, who lives in Sydney. And it was published in The Guardian, and it was the first time he published under his real name, and the first time he published in The Guardian. So when I read that article through the networks that I was involved in, that was it was shared on social media, um, I thought, why don't I know about this person? Why isn't he a central part of the, the discussion? How come he's not more uh, better known? Right. Uh, and uh, at that point, I thought that I'd uh, find him online, and uh, I found his Facebook um, page or his Facebook account. I sent him a message, and at the beginning of 2016, phones were contraband and the reception was awful in the prison, uh, it was ex- they were extremely remote. And uh, he also, he wasn't opening up me- a lot of messages from people he didn't know, but I got lucky. He opened up mine, mm. started a conversation, we moved from uh, Facebook to WhatsApp, and I started translating journalism, and then later, uh, in 2016 at the end, we, I started on the book, and the rest is history.
0: Right, and where were you living at the time?
1: At that time, I was in Sydney, Okay. and it was around the middle of two thousand and seventeen. Just I think August two thousand and seventeen that I moved to Cairo. Okay. So the translation of the book uh, was partly in, done, partly in Sydney, partly in Cairo, and also partly in on Manus Island when I went to visit Becher's.
0: Right. I mean, the so the way you describe it in in pieces that I've read about it, it seems um, like a much more of a collaborative process, a co-authoring process, almost of this experimental translation versus uh, the translator working on a on a text.
1: It may seem that way, but uh, I think it's, it's really important to define um, this. Even though it's a collaborative project, there's definitely an author mm. and there's definitely a translator. That that's okay. um, so the. Uh, and it's so difficult to and so complex t- to explain this uh, particular collaborative work that it often it, it blurs those categories, right. it blurs, it blurs those um, uh, those roles. So Bevers wrote the whole book on WhatsApp right. by text message, and he sent those text messages to um, Munis Mansubi, and um, so he was uh, writing it from the very first phase of. The, the, uh, his incarceration on Manus Island within the first few months when he got a contraband phone smuggled in so he, uh, he sent the messages ranging from about one paragraph to two pages to Munis Mansubi and based on his instructions she would put these passages into chapters and so when I came onto the project uh, she Behruz had written about 30% of the book so mm-hmm. the early chapters and Munis emailed me PDFs of those chapters so when I received those, I was looking at every chapter, which was one long text message.
0: Right. Wow.
1: And so I had to edit and translate at the same time. And I guess this is where the confusion comes about in right. terms of uh, you know, what kind of collaboration took place. So um, he had written the whole chapter. I was translating. Um, but while I was translating, he was sending me uh, messages directly asking me to add particular passages in different parts of the chapters. So then they became even more complex, and there were more layers. And then we were talking on a daily basis, and um, sometimes we'd talk for a long period about one word or one sentence or one section. And so that ended up changing. And we never made these changes to the original Farsi. We only made them to the translation. So it gets even more confusing and harder to explain.
0: Right, so the original ends up being different from the English translation, but both his products.
1: Exactly, exactly. And while I was translating the early chapters, he was writing the middle chapters. Mm -hmm. Then while I was translating the middle chapters, he was writing the last chapters. And the final chapter, chapter 12, is really interesting because he was writing that while the prison was under siege for 23 days. So he'd started it before... He couldn't finish it during the siege, obviously, mm-hmm. because he was writing a diary. I was translating on a daily basis. Um, you know, the the situation was extraordinarily horrific. Uh, and then, when he was um, uh, forcibly evicted from the original prison and put into newer prisons um, in another part of Manus Island, that's when he finally finished that last chapter. And he didn't send that one to Manus in pieces. That one he wrote completely. And then um, it sent it to me by text message. So the last chapter has uh, a unique character to it, a unique quality to it.
0: Right. So in two different places, I um, so I just have to admit that my sort of uh, when I imagine a philosophy professor, it is not somebody engaged in work with refugees or literary translation mm-hmm. or I guess anything about mm-hmm. the contemporary world. Mm-hmm. So this is very wrong with me and. Uh, I, I should
1: I should mention though I think you you are actually right uh, I'm, I'm I'm very much on the fringes okay. of uh, of academia and especially in philosophy so uh, I see myself in many ways as a counter philosophy a counter philosopher okay,
0: a okay. Um, because I I mean I, I was interested in um, how philosophy informs uh, your process both with work with refugees and the de bordering and with literary translation I saw in two different places you called it a form of shared philosophical activity. And I guess I wanted to know, what does that mean?
1: Okay. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think, one of the things that connected me with betrus, and um, even though i 've been working with um, other refugees um, other migrants who were involved in intellectual and creative work, there was something about betrus 's work that uh, really connected with me and, and drew me in in a, in a way that i 'd never experienced before and I think it was the the multi layers of meaning associated with his work uh, and the way that his his vision his his way of being his way of thinking. Um, w- was in itself a de practice. I identified it as a okay. de-bordering practice. So he, he blurs the boundaries between uh, literature, um, theoretical work, intellectual work, um, artistic work, um, myth and folklore and history and... Um, even uh, I think some a lot of his work I, I could describe as psychoanalytic examinations of mm. you know the human condition and so there's there's so much in Beethoven's work that overlaps and blurs boundaries and in fact uh, I call his work in many respects especially his literature uh, an, an anti-genre and so when I was working with him and uh, as we were uh, working towards one particular goal uh, we, we started to understand each other a lot better. Our um, uh, understanding or our uh, notion of um, political action and transformation uh, really started to merge in important ways. I saw what we were doing as a shared philosophical activity because in in philosophy there's um, uh, interesting discussions, interesting work done on um, multiple identities, one body multiple selves Right. Uh, whereas here in this case w- w- what I was seeing w- between and, and myself and, and also other people that we were working in conjunction with was many bodies, one mind Mm-hmm. So there was kind of a shared um, or a collective intentionality, uh, a right. shared agency. Uh, and I think w- this particular project opens up new questions and uh, philosophical questions, I mean, uh, on top of all of the other political, literary, um, intellectual issues. It, it says uh, some interesting things about um, about philosophy and, and opens up new, uh, I guess, um, uh ...philosophical subjects or philosophical um, themes that can be uh, expanded. And, uh, and I think at, at this point we see an interesting connection between lived experience, activism and philosophical work.
0: I w- so I was also reading this, um, the refugee filmmaking. Uh, and in your introduction, you when you talk about how we deborder, mm-hmm. you were talking about how centering writers and artists impacted by border violence... And I just wanted to know what what are some of the ways that people working in literature uh, can move towards de What are some of better practices and worse practices?
1: Well, maybe I'll start by giving an example of um, the... Early period, um, when I was working with was he uh, was writing amazing journalism. Uh, he was reporting from inside the detention center. He was, um, uh, he was analyzing the prison system, and uh, he was uh, developing this uh, really astute, really profound insight into the way that state violence works. Um, however, for many years there was no uh, infrastructure, no. Uh, Capacity and also maybe no tradition or culture within Australian media Mm. to accommodate what Behrouz was doing. First of all, it was extraordinarily hard for him to find translators. Um, Then uh, he talks often to me about how he was uh, humiliated by journalists early on in his writing. They didn't consider him a journalist. He he couldn't break through this stereotype of a refugee, someone who's passive, maybe... um, uh, Weak, broken, um, inept, Um, you know, he was always being interpreted in terms of deficit.
0: Right. And Um, they're there to tell his story. Yeah, exactly.
1: And so for a long time, he was actually, the writing that he was doing, the reporting that he was doing was uh, referred to by other journalists uh, and uh, he was um, acknowledged as an unidentified source. Wow and even when he wanted to, he found a translator and wanted to publish his work in media or media outlets uh he was told on on a number of occasions that we can't publish this this is this is not good enough you know and and it was the guardian that really gave him his first opportunity major opportunity mm. to show what he's capable of and but still I think it was around three years before he really started to gather a a network of people around him and really start to get the attention that he deserves. And I have to say it wasn't until the 23-day siege when he um, was writing those uh, diary entries. Right, I remember those. Published in The Guardian as well. And also his work in the Saturday paper. Mm -hmm. Um, So that really sort of launched him... um, into a completely new sphere, and uh, and uh, he acquired a really uh, special um, and larger uh, readership. But, of course, the book coming out was phenomenal, but also uh, winning the award, the Victorian Prize for Literature. I, I guess I'm explaining all of this to say that... Uh, do we have the right kind of infrastructure? Do we have the right kind of networks? Do, is there the right vision within supporters of, for refugees to actually allow for these kinds of voices, these kinds of insights to come in and actually lead, to make decisions, to teach us about what state violence is about, what, we, what the state is capable of, uh, and what kind of mechanisms of control and domination and subjugation are being uh, experimented. Uh, with on, on people who are considered non-citizens, undesirable, because this then impacts the citizen. You know, there is a relationship between the border and uh, the citizen.
0: Right. Absolutely. If not now, later. Exactly. So some of the things there needed to be more. There need to be more translators who can who can translators work, but then also sort of also like a mindset change.
1: Absolutely. I think, and uh, what I said um, earlier about. Uh, uh, the kind of perception or the stereotype of a refugee as passive, uh, broken, weak, needy. Mm. Um, the refugee is always, uh, you know, the definition or the understanding of a refugee is always in contrast to the citizen, um, and uh, and that is determined by this kind of deficit surplus dichotomy. So the refugee is always seen as someone who's going to be a drain someone who is going to need extra assistance, uh, which, I mean, of course, it's true, but we all need uh, assistance. We all need support in different ways. Uh, And uh, I think this particular perception of refugees uh, uh, undermines the fact that they can contribute something that we'll never be able to acquire because of our citizen privilege.
0: Right. So um, I, I also wanted to ask about how you talked about this absolute or radical openness Mm -hmm. as part of the experimental process of translating it and how you intended to bring that into your future work as well, Mm -hmm. sort of what that meant for the process of, of creating this work and what future projects you're looking at.
1: One of the things that I've been influenced by in my philosophical work is um, research in social epistemology, particularly uh, an area called epistemic injustice. Mm -hmm. So uh, in epistemic injustice, there are a range of different forms of oppression. Uh, One of them is regarding testimony. Uh, so the way that testimonies are interpreted, the way they're um, evaluated, the way that they're uh, used or the way they're um, uh, they, they're compounded with other forms of um, speech acts. Um, the other one is, is what's called hermeneutical injustice, where uh, in this case you don't need a perpetrator and a victim. It's, uh, it's structural. The problem is structural. Uh, and there are a range of other forms of epistemic injustice, but these two are the, um, I guess, uh, the better-known forms of um, uh, epistemic injustice. Now, w- in terms of radical openness, I think um, w- one of them needs to be about how we engage, how we understand, how we incorporate testimonies. Um, it- it's-, it's remarkable that uh, journalists will write about what's happening in detention centres, the kind of violence that takes place, only when there's a particular kind of evidence provided mm. whereas refugees have been giving testimonies about what they go through for years and years but that's not considered legitimate evidence um, it's you know it, it, it's it's it seems like only when a particular kind of um, study is done or a particular uh, I guess n- news outlet um, uh, releases uh, releases information it's only at that point that suddenly people maybe Unconsciously or subconsciously, really start to take this seriously and consider it as you know a contribution to knowledge. Right, Whereas right. They don't have the kind of uh, uh, the appreciation of the knowledge that is embodied in the um, uh, in the refugee who is within the the detention centre, who is contained, incarcerated, and subject to systematic torture. Which is another important point. Betrus has been talking about what's happening in these spaces for a long time. as systematic torture, but. Even people who um, are sympathetic towards refugees and supportive of refugees um, were really unsure exactly what he meant by that and whether it was the right way to describe what was happening to people in those sites. Uh, And I think a lot of this has to do with um, testimonial injustice. With hermeneutical injustice, we have to even go go further in terms of the openness, the radical openness, and start to think, what kind of concepts, definitions... Theoretical frameworks are we using? What kind of um, symbolic aesthetic is conditioning the way we're um, we're engaging and um, and uh, and strategizing in order to transform um, border violence um, or dis- dismantle border violence? I should right. say. So, um, so in that respect, we we need to think about the the structures and the conditions that create knowledge. Uh, allow for knowledge and de- determine uh what is considered uh valid and invalid so um yeah this kind of radical openness requires i, I guess a, a really a uh um a transformation on so many different levels, intellectually, artistically, socially, politically, economically. and uh, But it, it fundamentally comes down to the way knowledge is produced and what is considered knowledge. Mm.
0: And so what are you working on to, to sort of wrap up? What are you working on now?
1: At the moment, um, I'm planning on a, a book about the translation of the book.
0: Oh, fantastic.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I realize that every time I have uh, engaging interviews or Mm. seminars or conferences, uh, I can never quite explain sufficiently. Right. Uh, what it took to make this book, and and again re- leading to some right. of the confusions about is this co-authorship or is it um, uh, what kind of collaborative work is it? What role did you play? Who else was involved? Right. What do you mean by the shared philosophical activity? I can never explain that sufficiently. Mm. It's, it's it's there's always gaps in my uh, account. Uh, so I think that. Uh, and also the fact that the the book is part of like a longer um project uh which goes back to when I first met Betrues even before I met Behr, was the work I was doing with other displaced and exiled peoples and you know, even going back to the stories that I heard growing up uh, uh, about family members and friends who were in these sorts of conditions. So all of these played a major role in the translation of the book. Right. Uh, and then uh, while I was translating the book, there was his journalism, there was the subtitles for his film, um, there was uh, speeches and tweets and all sorts of things that we were working on together. So... Also, the multi-layers of meaning in the book, you know, mm-hmm. all this this notion of anti-genre, what does that mean, and, and what other forms of uh, knowledge are actually intertwined and uh, working in conjunction with each other to create what we have now, which is a remarkable piece of literature. Uh, to explain all of that, I really need a book. Uh, right. I really need to write a right. book about
0: it. Well, it's just, uh, he, it was fantastically fortunate, though, that he he found you as as the sort of a reader... And then as a translator of the book, mm-hmm. rather, you know, rather than all these people beforehand saying, well, this this doesn't fit. This isn't good enough because it's not exactly how yeah. we would see it, you know, yeah. versus looking at what it is instead of what it isn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Beres and I talk about that. And I say when he says that, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I found you and we are able to not only uh, work together, but also have like very deep uh, conversations and uh, uh, engage in a lot of critical analysis and I say to veterans, um one of the things I love about working with him is that it completely disrupts this victim savior um, binary um. that is associated with refugee supporters uh, or, or you know a lot of um, um, interaction between citizens and, and and refugees and and I say to is that you've actually done more for me
0: Right, right. I, I'm the one that's right. really
1: benefited in many ways from right. his collaboration and uh, and you know, a, a lot of my philosophical work and a lot of the uh, research that I was doing before meeting Behruz really um, uh, enhanced as a result of in- interacting with him and, uh, and and translating for him. The other work that I'm planning on doing is uh, writing another um, uh, uh, academic book about um, epistemology and displacement and exile as philosophical standpoints or positions mm. and also the role of pride in so there's some really interesting work in social epistemology about um, how pride actually uh, creates new ways of seeing and knowing and new ways of interacting and also must be seen as a political act as well so I think with the work that Behrouz is doing one of the things that I'm extremely pleased with and uh and i think has so much potential is the way that the celebration of his book the joy generated um uh, as right. a result of the awards um, the hope that it's created and also the pride associated with it mm. are political acts right so again going back to this idea of openness thinking about these things that uh, are not, in some respects may not be seen as being explicitly political making them integral to political action
0: Excellent. Thank you, Omid, for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And of, of course, at this off London Book Fair event. <laughs>